coming up in this episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. And what I see is four big, burly SWAT guys slipping on the ice and falling down, all four of them simultaneously. <laughs> Sean McGee watches an Alaskan SWAT team do an impromptu performance of the ice capades, and Dick Griffith discovers that something is terribly wrong with his, well, I'll let him tell you. There was something wrong with my butt. <laughs> you know, I felt back there, it was like uh, cardboard. <laughs> the power of cold. Up next on Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, I'm Rob Prince. The incredible power of cold can have some very unexpected consequences up here in Alaska. From a cup of boiling water exploding into a plume of steam when you throw it into the air, to freezing flat spots on your car tires that can make for a bumpy ride until they round themselves out again. My dear friend Sean McGee has a long and storied career as a police officer in Alaska. He experienced the unexpected power of cold during a dramatic police bust that went horribly wrong, and he and I discussed that story at our April 2018 live event in Fairbanks. Just a quick heads up that this story does include a brief reference to a gruesome discovery that may not be appropriate for children. Here's Sean. For me, things kind of start uh, roughly winter of 2009. What had happened initially was that there was a state trooper who had tried to, to pull a motorist over, and uh, the motorist fled at some point. The motorist jumps out on foot and takes off running, and the trooper tried to to catch the individual, but he was unable to catch him. So uh, he decided at this point it's just wise and prudent to impound the vehicle and put in the impound yard, which is in the, the backside of the trooper uh, facility. So it sat there for a while? Yeah, the, the, the car sat there the entirety of the winter and, and kind of just like this time of year where we've got that uh, the warmer temperatures during the day, uh, there was a, a more seasoned trooper investigator uh, leaving work for the night, and he, he finishes up his shift, and he happens to walk out uh, in the area near the impound yard. And as he as he does that, he he picks up the odor of uh, decomposition. So he uh, he goes back into the troopers, and he, he pulls aside one of the the fish and wildlife officers and says, "Come with me." They go out to the impound yard. And he says, somewhere in this impound yard right now is a fish and game violation. Right. So they follow their nose. <laughs> and, uh, and they end up at the trunk of the, the car that had been involved in the chase earlier in the winter. So they end up popping the trunk. And uh, let, me, let me just pause you here. Sure. If there's any sensitive listeners, now would be a good time to cover your ears. <laughs> I'll let you know when we can join us again. So they pop the trunk. They pop the trunk, and, uh, and unfortunately, and there's no real easy way to, to describe this, uh, they find in the trunk of the vehicle a, uh, a human head, and they find uh, several jars with uh, what look to be tattoos in the jars. On, on skin. On right. skin. Right. So with that, they, they renew their interest in trying to identify who the motorist might have been, uh, they uh, begin to develop the story. Uh, the story uh, regarding the, the items in the trunk was, was very straightforward, very simple. Um, the, the, the 
the individual involved in this apparently had been involved in the sale of narcotics and that uh, he would use uh, the, the head. Uh, it came from one of his competitors at one time. And so he would, if he, if he got the sense that you were in competition with him, he would show this to his competition and say, this will happen to you. If you continue to, uh, to sell in this area, you need to leave kind of thing. It was his, it was his marketing campaign. So it's like the world's most effective PowerPoint presentation. You would think. <laughs> All right, so you, you know this because you had an informant that you lined up so with at, him, right? At some point, yeah, and, and I'm not involved in the actual investigation of this event. This uh, was, was handled by the Alaska State Troopers. Uh, they, they ultimately do develop uh, a confidential informant, someone who, who knew who this individual was and who was willing to speak with uh, that person. And then that's when the team leader turns to me and says, okay, uh, Sean, you know, come up with your plan. How, how, are you, how are you going to take this individual into custody? Right. And so uh, I grab the folks that I'm with, and, and we do just that. It, it's one of those things where it's a, it's a, a group decision. You know, there, sure, there's a leader at some point, but I'm taking input at this, point, at this time from, from everybody on the team minus one person. Uh, that one person, he was in, in court at the time. And the judge is not going to take kindly to the fact that he would leave court early. So we understood that uh, he was responsible for handling that before he could ever come and, and participate with us. The unfortunate part of that, though, is that there is something of an unwritten rule in, in this kind of a, an operation where if you aren't a part of the briefing, if you can't be a part of that initial briefing, you're not supposed to be participating in the, ultimately in the operation. Um, for reasons that will, I guess, become apparent here shortly. What exactly was the plan that you all came up with? Sure. So the, the, the plan is that we had a gas station and that there was an open uh, lot in the back of the gas station. The confidential informant and the individual uh, involved were going to park in the, uh, the back side of the gas station in about the middle of the gas station. My team and I were going to drive up in something that looks a bit like a, a soccer mom van. We were going to park there. Now we say soccer person, Sean. <laughs> soccer person? I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we're inclusive here. We're inclusive here. <laughs> we pull up in the soccer person <laughs> van. <laughs> and uh, it, the uh, driver of the van, who was uh, not a part of our team, hops out puts the gas pump in the vehicle and makes it look as though we're, we're getting gas. And there's the six of us in the back of the van just waiting at this point to hear from command that, it's, that we, they've got enough information and that we can take the individual into custody. Okay, so you're in front of the gas station. The idea was the suspect is gonna be parked behind the gas station in the, in the middle of the back area in a pickup truck. Right. Your team is going to, are you going to split? We are going to split. There's going to yeah. be two of us going to the right, and four of us are going to go to the left side of the facility. Yeah. And with the, with the green light, you all are going to converge on him from both sides. This is it. Right? Right. And then who else was involved at this point? Uh, we had a, uh, a perimeter. Uh, okay. so, so my element uh, is responsible for contact, and then in addition to my element, you also have uh, officers positioned all around the yep. site. Yep. And in addition to that, we also had a, a police canine on scene. Uh, the directive at this point for us was, uh, whatever you do, if for some reason the individual that we're trying to take into custody were to get out of the vehicle and take off running, do not chase him. Uh, 
And, and so that sounds like such a simple thing. And, and, and I finally pulled the canine handler aside and I said, what, what, what do you mean don't chase him? And he says, well, think about it this way. He says, the police canine focuses on aggression. And he says, and if you're the guy chasing somebody, you just became the most aggressive person on site. What then actually did happen? So uh, things go well right up until the part where we uh, put the gas pump in the soccer person <laughs> van and command calls us on the radio and says, move into your, your final positions. And so uh, myself and one of my teammates take up our position on the right side of the building as you face it. Four of my other teammates take up position on the left side of the building. And then just before we were to round the corner, we hold and we wait for command to say, go. And that word comes through rather quickly once we're in position. And that's where things start to fall apart. I get to the side of the building. I, I pause for a moment. Word comes across the radio and my earpiece is go. And I turn the corner and no sooner do I turn that corner, I run into the pickup truck with the confidential informant. I, I physically hit the truck because it is parked nowhere near the middle of the building at this point. It is parked right at the corner. It just far enough over so I couldn't see it when I was in my last position of concealment, but then there it was. And so I hit it, bounce off of it real quick, <laughs> take up, you know, I sidestep just a couple feet to my left, and, and I'm where I need to be. And my entire world at this point is that individual sitting in the passenger seat. I see his face, I see his eyes as he sits there, and I don't really deviate my, my view at this point. I'm looking right at him. I'm, I'm yelling commands to him. Don't move. Don't move. Those kinds of things. Let me see your hands, as I'm saying to him. Okay, but wait. It's all going to be fine because there's four more guys coming oh, around the other side. Here they come. They'll clean it up, right? And that's the problem. Again, watching the, watching the individual now, I'm getting a sense that there's a gap. <laughs> there, is, there is no four people off to my left-hand side. And at some point, I've got to look a little bit further <laughs> off just to see where they are. And what I see is four big, early SWAT guys slipping on the ice and falling down, all four of them simultaneously. <laughs> Go back to that heavy vest that we're all wearing at this point. We're like big weeble wobbles. <laughs> they fall. The top half of the body's heavier than the bottom half, and they're down for a little while. They can get back to their feet. Now, again, I'm trying to watch him, but I'm looking at them, and as they get right back to their feet, all four of them fall back down a second time. Oh, no. I'm starting to get how he got away here a little bit. but <laughs> All right, so at that point, those guys are pretty much down. You're on the wrong side of the car. He, he hops out. And he does. Point, he's, right? he's, he's got his, his, his gap. He sees his, his opportunity, and he moves for it. And he's quickly out of the truck, and he takes off running right away from me towards a, a fence off in the distance. Right. Who chases him? That, let's go back to that one individual who missed the briefing. <laughs> I covered all of the appropriate information with that individual except for one part. <laughs> I failed to mention the fact that the dog was there. And that particular trooper 
is what we would call a gazelle. He is as fast as they come when it, when it comes to running. I'm not a runner. <laughs> Unless you're chasing me, I'm not a runner. <laughs> and, and he's on his feet, and he is taking off right after the subject as, the, as he's running towards the fence line. The canine handler, who's present, described it to me like this. He said he has straddled the dog, which is what they commonly do. He's got his hands on the, like the collar of the dog, and he's trying to get the dog's head to look at the, at the, the guy running away, the, you know, uh, the, the subject that we were trying to take into custody. But the dog's head keeps switching back to my friend. <laughs> who is running behind the guy. The canine handler, to his credit, knows that if he lets go of the canine, the canine is gonna nuke the trooper. There's no other way about it. Yeah. The three other guys who were on the ice, they're now on their feet, and even though they know better, they're all chasing the trooper. <laughs> so all four of them now are running. The canine can't be let go. The canine handler picks up, and yeah, I mean, I'm sure I, I know exactly what was going on in his head at that moment, <laughs> knowing him. <laughs> He's furious. He picks up the dog. He starts to walk towards the patrol car to put the dog back away. The dog is so frustrated right now because it really wanted to go and get somebody. So the dog does this thing with its head somehow where the head just comes all the way over and the dog begins biting up and down the handler's arm. The handler, to his credit, takes all of the hits from the dog, extremely painful, still walks the dog over, puts the dog into the patrol car, and that's, that's that aspect of, of the event. A, a pickup truck pulls into the parking lot where we're all, I'm still standing there, not moving, Again, I, see, I make eye contact with the, the driver of the vehicle. He says, what happened? I said, he's on his way to the fence. He says, I'm going to drive down the street and see if I can't get ahead of him. I said, I'm with you. And I run over, and I jump into the back of his pickup truck. There's two police officers in the cab of the truck and me now in the back of this pickup truck. And we take off down Van Horn Road in an effort to get ahead of where we think this guy is going to be running, and then cut in to try and cut him off and, and get him. We're driving rather fast down Van Horn Road at this point. Now we've cut in. We're slowing down a little bit. We're still moving kind of quickly, I guess, maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 20 miles an hour. And I feel us slowing down. And so for me, being in the back of the truck, what I'm going to try and do now is I'm going to try and start to stand up so I can see what is going on. The time with me in the back of the truck, that earpiece that I had has fallen out. And what's being discussed on the radio is that when, he, when the subject was in the pickup truck and they were talking in earlier, he had said how he had a gun, how he was never going to go back to jail, that he'd shoot somebody, stop them from getting to jail, so word is going out over the radio. Be careful, be careful, don't, don't get too close to him. We have reason to believe he's armed, all of those kinds of things. I don't hear any of that. I'm just coming up, I'm almost to full, a full standing position as I'm looking, and as I glance off to my right, I can see him. I see him hiding underneath a semi-tractor trailer. And no sooner do I see him there, maybe 
30 yards away or so, the driver of the vehicle, my good friend, <laughs> who shall not be named, sees him at the same time, and he slams on the brakes. <laughs> I'm launched <laughs> directly over the cab of the truck. As I go past the windshield, the passenger in the truck, another good friend of mine, looks at the driver and says, do you see that? <laughs> he says, that's that SWAT <laughs> He says, he knows he's got that gun. And he jumps out of the truck after him. <laughs> All I know is that I've flown through the air, I've hit the ground, I've tumbled a number of times, and perhaps because of the way I'm dressed with all the stuff on and everything, I, I, when I stop rolling, I am on my feet and I'm closer to the bad guy than ever before. <laughs> so I start running after him. He starts running away from me. And uh, I, I can feel that I'm closing on him. I'm getting closer, I'm getting closer. And there was yet another one of these cedar fences that we were getting closer to. He, the guy that was running seemed to be getting tired and he hops up on that cedar fence and he kind of pauses for just a moment and that's enough time for me to, uh, to have closed the distance with him and I hit him and, uh, and I basically drive him through that fence at that point. <laughs> My buddy is running on the inside of the fence. He says it's the most amazing thing he's ever seen. <laughs> he's running and, and then here comes the fence and here comes the guy and here's me on top of the guy. <laughs> And everybody jumps on then. And, and that was a good thing, because with all that weight on him, uh, he wasn't able to get to the gun. They roll us off one at a time, we keep you know, control of his hands. And then somebody reaches inside of his jacket, and, he, and they pull out the, uh, the gun. The gun was a uh, Kassoul, a 454 Kassoul, one of the, the biggest handguns I've, I've ever seen in my life. And I'm pretty sure if he would have pointed that at me at some point during this entire exchange, it would have it been bad for me. <laughs> So what were the things that you learned from this oh. job? <laughs> where, where to start? Is this why you're in academia now? Just is, out of yeah, no more police work for me, right? <laughs> um, for, no, for me, uh, you know, th those unwritten rules that, that are in our world, uh, they're, they're there for a reason. Um, you know, my violating that, that one rule of, you know, don't, uh, don't have somebody participate in the operation if they're not the briefing, that, that was critical for me. In fact, normally this is something that I would have talked about with, with new troopers who are looking to get on the team. The idea was, you know, learn from my mistakes, please don't reinvent them yourself kind of thing. So that, that was critical for me. And, and I think the other thing I walked away from this event with is this idea, you know, the folks from the military understand this, um, this idea that, you know, uh, they're, they're, no plan um, stays the same after first contact in the field kind of thing. And that, that was very much the case for me. We may have had pl a plan A and even a plan B, but I think by the time we finished this particular operation, we were, 
on the E and F <laughs> plans. There's definitely some F in there, I'll give you that. Yes. So. <laughs> Sean, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Sean McGee. I'll take that mic from you. Sean McGee. He shared that story at our April 2018 live event in Fairbanks. This is Dark Winter Nights, true stories from Alaska. I'm Rob Prince. Dick Griffith is a legendary hiker who has hiked more than 6,000 miles in his lifetime, mostly in Alaska and much of it in the winter and alone. The power of cold has definitely taken a few bites out of him in all that time. He shared some of his most harrowing stories with me at our November 2015 live event in Fairbanks. First of all, 6,000 miles, what keeps you moving? You talk in the book about sometimes not even knowing why you're out there. Oh, what keeps my moving? It's my two legs. Okay. <laughs> I, I have wonderful legs. <laughs> I'm getting a sense this is going to be like a ventriloquist act it's or something not. like that. <laughs> How did you get the nickname Black Ass? Uh, I didn't think we could use that word, but... Um, <laughs> okay. It's okay. Um, you know, I had walked from Kaktovik to Anaktovik and... I got to Anaktubik and the wind was blowing 30 miles an hour, it was 30 below zero, and I went south. I was skiing down, I tried to reach the, the, the tree line where I could build a fire. Once I got in the tree line, I was safe. And uh, I wasn't paying attention because I was skiing real fast, it was downhill, it was great. And the wind blew up underneath my coat and that didn't bother me too much. And I decided when it got dark, I had to camp. And so I didn't reach the tree line. I couldn't build a fire. So the only thing I could do was dig a trench, throw my sleeping bag in a trench. And when I opened up my sleeping bag, I found out that it was off the track. So I took my gloves off, put it back on the track. I froze um, all my fingers but my two index fingers in 30 seconds. It was that cold. It was 40 below zero and the wind was 40 miles an hour. So I dumped my sleeping bag in the trench and the snow drifted over the top of me. I got warmed up and um, there was something wrong with my butt. <laughs> you know, I felt back there it was like uh, cardboard. <laughs> and um, I said, man, this is bad, you know. <laughs> but I survived the night, and um, next day I put my skis on. I could hardly get on my skis. And it took me six days to get the crevice creek. There was a homestead there, operated by Bill Ficus and Lil Ficus. And I got there at 9 o'clock at night. It was still 30 below zero. The wind was still blowing, and my butt froze a little bit harder every day, a little bit deeper. And Bill flew me into Bettles, and I caught an airplane to Anchorage. Of course, everybody moved to the back end when I got on, because um, I smelled so bad. <laughs> it was really bad. <laughs> and I just barely made it to, to Providence Hospital. I was there for a month and I had extensive uh, skin grafts. And I got out of the hospital, I was on crutches, and um, I had to work standing up. 
And, you know, it's when something like this happens, a lot of derogatory um, names you get. Um, my friends call me black ass. My colleagues call me a half-assed engineer. <laughs> yeah, that made me mad. <laughs> yeah. But um, <clears throat> that's enough for that story. Okay. <laughs> yes, thank you. I retired on a Friday, and I was 63 years old, and I decided to ski from Uniclete to Barrel, which is 900 miles. Of course, there's polar bears. You know, you're supposed to be worried about polar bears and wolves and all this stuff, and polar bears are nothing. Uh, <laughs> I feel the same way. They're totally overrated. But, <laughs> But, you know, the fox, the fox is so horrible. When I was out there, 40% of them were rabid. And when I, just before I got to Kivalina, it was early in the morning, I saw this shadow next to me, and he grabbed my leg, the shadow did. <laughs> That's all I saw. And I was on my, I was in my um, sled in a harness, and so I reached back and I tried to stab the rough fox with my pole and, and I missed him and I fell down on the slick ice and I was tied to my skis and tied to the sled. He got me again on the glove, he got me on the chest and um, of course I was, I knew immediately I was rabid. <laughs> there was no way he got <laughs> because he did a number on me. And, um, but I noticed that, you know, it didn't break any skin, but I was still rabid. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I said, I got to get the Kivalina and I need help. And so I, I, it was a shortcut. There was some soft ice out there and all I had to do was cut across this soft ice and I'd get the Kivalina quick. And I got out there about a um, quarter of a mile. I fell into the ocean. I dropped through the ice. And it's um, really not a big deal. You just break the ice off and you climb back up. And um, it was Simple, 10 below. Really, yeah, when you um, it. <laughs> uh, it wasn't really cold. Um, long the ocean, the frozen ocean, just so I want to clarify, the frozen ocean wasn't really that cold? <laughs> No, no, because okay. it just froze. It, it's what you call new ice. There's fast ice and there's new ice. Oh. You travel in the ocean, you know, you've got these terms that goes with it. I fell in and I got out and of course I was froze immediately like a popsicle, you know, but it's, it's nothing really. You just get in your tent and you start your little stove up, throw out your clothes and that's it. And when I got to Kivalina, I told the, I told the natives, I says, I'm rabid. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they laughed at me. They looked at my little mark on my leg, and they said, I said, that's nothing. The kids get bit all the time just going to school. <laughs> yeah. And so I said, gee, yeah, you know. But my problem was I, I told people in Anchorage, and you never tell people in Anchorage, you know I come from that. <laughs> Don't tell them anything. <laughs> yeah. But um, the doctors want me to come back and get my, you know, the long shots, whatever they are. So from Barrel, they sent a helicopter down to pick me up. 
and a helicopter couldn't find me, and they come 300 miles. So the next day they sent two airplanes to find me, and they finally found me. I didn't go back and get my shot, so I just toughed it out. <laughs> well, I just want to say, with perseverance, you too can conquer rabies. <laughs> In all these travels, Dick, um, have you learned anything about life and what it means to be human in spending all this time by yourself out in the wilderness? You know, I didn't learn anything. <laughs> Dick Griffith, ladies and gentlemen. Dick Griffith. He shared that story at our November 2015 live event in Fairbanks. Thanks for listening to Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska, the Power of Cold episode. Today's episode was edited by me, Rob Prince, with story consultation by Lori Newfeld. Remember... These are the stories we tell up here in Alaska on Dark Winter Nights. I'm Rob Prince. Oh.